This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 6, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Andrew Wagner interviews Alexandra Tinnerman about the nocebo effect. Instead of getting positive side effects with no treatment, like the placebo effect, in the nocebo effect, you get negative side effects with no treatment. What does it mean, and how can we use our understanding of this to improve clinical trials? And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. Our first story is on snake-shaped robots rescuing people or not. We've made a lot of videos about strangely shaped robots, little cubes that roll around, little sacks that inflate, bee-sized flying robots, and yes, snake bots. And when we wrap up the video after explaining how they work and the materials and the engineering, we often say... Someday, these can be used in search and rescue missions. Well, the time has come, Dave. A group of researchers brought their snake bot down to Mexico after the recent earthquake to test out this idea. Did they find anyone? They did not, uh, unfortunately. But part of the problem is they were down there more than two days after the earthquake. And unfortunately, it's really those first 48 hours that are really critical for finding people still alive. So they didn't have a high hopes of success in the first place. But they did learn a lot from actually deploying along with the robot. What were the biggest technological things? Like what was not right about the robot for this purpose? Well, you know, the neat thing about these robots is, and you can see a picture of them on the site, they're, you know, about a meter long. They've got 16 joints. They actually kind of look like snakes. Instead of eyes, they sort of have a camera. So the idea is that this snake could slither their way into these crevices that humans and other types of robots couldn't. But what the researchers discovered is even with that sort of cool makeup and the camera, there are still some limitations. These robots don't have microphones. They don't have other types of sensors, maybe potentially like heat sensors or other types of sensors that might help them better pick up people. Right, because if you just stick a camera down a hole, you immediately run into – you know, some problems with being able to really decide where you want to go with that camera. Exactly. Um, So in terms of practical things, it turns out they actually need a lot of people to run this robot too. Yeah, you need up to four people. You need somebody to uh, drive the robot. You need somebody to 
tend the robot at the point of insertion. You need somebody to manage the tether that's attached to the robot. And you may even need a fourth person to help the driver interpret the images that they're seeing. Okay. And then there's the bureaucratic level of business that they ran into. How easy was it to just become part of the rescue process? It wasn't easy at all. I mean, there were First of all, there were turf wars over like who was doing what. And so the locals would say, don't go into my factory. We don't trust the government. And the researchers would say, well, we're not with the government. But there was a lot of distrust about even letting the robots into the sites, where in the sites they could go, and sort of how timely all of this could be. And these robots have been in other kind of tough situations before. Yeah, they've gone to nuclear reactor plants. They've done archaeology sites as well. And uh, But, you know, the challenges here aren't unique to this team. You know, the researchers say that no robot has actually found anybody alive, actually helped save people. There was actually robots used in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, and they didn't find people either. So this technology, while it's still promising, really has to still be improved a lot to even get to the point where search and rescue dogs are today. Now we have a story on the abandoned town of Brew. Where is Brew, Dave, and how long has it been abandoned? Well, Brew is a farming town, or rather it used to be a farming town, on Scotland's Shetland Islands, which are an archipelago just south of the Arctic Circle. We know that the village was abandoned sometime in maybe the early 1700s, but we think the precipitating event happened a bit before that. And it's very cold and windy up there, and that might be the reason why Brew was eventually abandoned. Um, And what the first clues to this came from an excavation of some of the buildings at Brew. What what did they find there? One of the big mysteries has been why was Brew abandoned when a lot of nearby villages were not abandoned? And one of the things they did was they used this technique called optically stimulated luminescence, which basically measures electrons to tell when a sediment was last exposed to light. So the thinking had been that Brew was covered in sand. Uh, That was the precipitating event that caused the farmers to leave, that the sand uh, buried homes, it destroyed fertile soil. But the question is twofold. Where did the sand come from? Um, And why, again, did it only strike Brew and not some of these other villages? So they were able to establish the timing by looking at these layers of sand. And then on top of that, they analyzed the wind, you know, traveling from the sea or from other places and hitting brew. What did that simulation show about patterns of sand and wind? Well, the sand comes from sandy beaches. So it's no surprise that a lot of these villages were getting lashed with sand every once in a while. What's interesting and what's unique about Brew's case is there was this little ice age that took hold in the 16th and 17th centuries, and that caused these sandstorms to be especially fierce. Now, what was special about Brew that this analysis indicated was that these wind speeds dropped off right before Brew. So you can imagine you've got a lot of sand being blown by the wind, and all of a sudden the wind stops that sand's going to drop right to the ground. And that appears to have happened right above Brew. So this is a really hyper-local effect. We have a little ice age. Everybody's colder. Probably a lot of them are windier. But for some reason, Brew was targeted by the sand specifically. Does this suggest something to you about maybe climate change's effects and how complicated it is to understand that? Well, right. Well, the researchers say one of the take-homes here is that when we think about climate change, we often think about what's happening on a global scale or even on a large regional scale, like something like the United States or the southern United States. 
states. But this says we might even want to drill down to the hyperlocal scale, something like a particular city or even a village, which might be impacted a lot differently than the regions around it. Last up, we have a story on predicting PTSD. This is work based on uh, surveys conducted by the U.S. military. And as a matter of policy, they've been asking or presenting military personnel with mental health questionnaires before and after deployment. And a pretty in-depth analysis showed something kind of surprising. Yeah, well, this survey is called the Global Assessment Tool, and the military has actually been giving it out for a few years now. And the purpose of the survey, and this is 105 questions, is to help soldiers understand their own strengths and weaknesses. But in this new study, the researchers said, well, hey, these soldiers are filling out the survey anyways. A lot of these questions could be predictive of something like PTSD. Can we find a correlation between how soldiers scored on the survey to whether they eventually went on to develop PTSD? And what kind of numbers did they find? Were they able to see a pretty strong connection between their rankings on these surveys and then their likelihood of getting PTSD later? They did. They found that they looked at more than 63,000 recruits um, between 2009 and 2012, and none of these recruits had been exposed to combat yet. And they found that soldiers who had scored in the bottom 5% of the mental health attributes of the survey were much more likely to show signs of depression or PTSD than the soldiers who scored in the upper 95%. And this is a timing thing. So they need to take the survey within 30 days of um, ending their deployment. Does that seem to capture enough of the data considering what's going on with soldiers after deployment? Well, right. So that's it's a pretty short window here. And the other issue is if you decide to turn this into something more formal, tell soldiers, hey, we're giving you a survey to try to figure out if you're going to get PTSD, then you kind of bias the survey because you might expect that soldiers are going to answer questions in a way they think is going to make them seem a lot more fit for duty, and that could really bias the results. And the other and the other issue is that these surveys weren't designed for this purpose. And so if you really want to do this, you've got to make sure the survey is designed specifically for this purpose. And the ultimate goal is to figure out who's going to need extra support. Because the problem with P- treating PTSD now is we wait for the symptoms to develop. And often by then, not that it's too late, but it's a lot harder to treat. And the, the, the idea is if you can anticipate it, then maybe you can take some proactive measures to potentially prevent it from occurring in the first place. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a new survey that has found pesticides in honey around the world and what that means, not just for pollinators, but also for us. Also a story about using computers to design better airplane wings and other structures, make them lighter, make vehicles more efficient. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an in-depth look at this week's Nobel Prize winners and some behind-the-scenes information about those. Also a story about why grass-fed cows won't necessarily save the climate. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Plenty of people have heard about the placebo effect, but what about the nocebo effect? Like the name implies, nocebo effects in medicine occur when a negative reaction happens to fake treatment. Scientists have been curious as to what causes this phenomenon, and it turns out one reason might have something to do with what we value. I'm Andrew Wagner. And joining me today to discuss these findings is head author of the study, Alexandra Tinnerman. Welcome, Alexandra. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how exactly did you go about researching this value-based nocebo effect? Well, in the beginning, we had to make sure 
to create a nocebo effect irrespective of the value. So what we basically did, we invited the participants to our institute and then we introduced them to a cream that doesn't exist in uh, in the real world. But what we told them about it was that it's a cream and um, that one known side effect of this cream is an increased pain sensitivity. So basically, if we apply the cream on the arm, they would experience um, a greater pain sensitivity under this cream when we apply a painful heat stimulus. Then after creating this general negative expectation about the cream, we introduced two different creams. So now we're coming to the value part. Uh, we had two different cream boxes, one that rather looked like a brand product and the other one looked rather like a generic product and in half of the participants we said well you will receive an expensive cream and these participants received the cream from the brand looking box and the second group they were told that they will test the cheap version of this cream and throughout the experiment they received the cream from the generic looking box. When did you see the pain start to hit the expensive group harder? Well, usually we try not to look at the behavior data while we were recording, but uh, we did a pilot study right before we uh, tried that in the scanner. And there we already saw this effect. And then when we analyzed the behavior data after recording um, all subjects in the scanner, we uh, found the same effect, which was great. So why do people experience this effect? Well, we can only hypothesize about that because we did not directly ask them what they were thinking. But uh, one idea is that expensive medication has a more potent agent. And if the agent is more potent, it also can produce more side effects. So I also understand that your study also had some implications for the brain and the, and the nocebo effects. Could you go a little bit into that? Well, yeah, we uh, investigated not only the brain, but also the spinal cord at the same time to see how these expectation effects uh, modulate the uh, interaction between different brain regions that process pain um, painful information, basically. And um, yeah, that was quite interesting to see that even this value um, modulated the communication between early areas such as the spinal cord and other areas such as the brainstem, for example. I see that the perceived price difference was only a few euros. It wasn't very much. So do you think that this effect might possibly scale with price? That is one possibility, of course. We would need to investigate that. But I think there are two different effects that could happen. So, for example, in general, the nocebo effect could increase with with price so that the difference between the cheap and the expensive remains the same, but rather the um, both values would increase. Or if we just increase the value, for example, of the... Um, expensive medication, that then also the nocebo effect will increase only in this group, that are both effects that are plausible, 
but yeah, that would be an interesting thing to investigate uh, in a further study, of course. You say it would, that would be an interesting effect to study in further research. So what's next for you in, in terms of researching this nocebo effect? Well, I think there are many interesting uh, things you can still do research on about nocebo effects because, yeah, there's not so much research actually focusing on the nocebo effect. It's rather about placebo effects. So one interesting thing would be to test that in patients and see, do we find the same effect in patients? Or, for example, look at age and see if um, maybe, so we had younger uh, participants, if we also find that in older adults, and then other more general things about nocebo effects would be, for example, interesting to see how much the information a doctor gives about uh, side effects influences the effect of side effects or the nocebo effect. So if a doctor says, for example, um, this will increase, uh, will induce any um, side effects, what will happen to the patient or if the doctor is more cautious in formulating that and says, so you might experience some side effects, for example. That would be um, interesting things for future research. So how can we use the information learned in your study in the future? Well, I think this is uh, kind of tricky because there are is other research about placebo effects that show that expensive medication increases the placebo effect. So now with our findings, we can mm. say that the more expensive um, a medication is, the more placebo we can expect, but also the more nocebo effect we can expect. So this is kind of then difficult to say, because if we say, well, uh, we maybe do not emphasize the price of the medication in order to have less side effects or fewer nocebo effects. We can also decrease the placebo effect with that. And that's the question, well, do we want that? So um, I think that, yeah, physicians, they might think about every patient carefully to see would it be more beneficial to increase a placebo effect or um, to decrease the nocebo effect and then decide if it's, for example, helpful or not helpful to mention the price of the medication. Alexandra, thanks for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. It was a great pleasure. Alexandra Tinnerman and colleagues write about value perception and the nocebo effect in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, 
is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.